0: Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here this morning. want to say hello to all of you watching and listening online in Canada, around the world. want to say good morning to everyone up at Port Perry. Actually, let's give a big C4 hello to our North C4 site in Port Perry this morning. Just want to say we love you guys. Great to see you this morning. Welcome to week three in our new series called The Sent Ones. Whether you're a skeptic here this morning, a genuine seeker, a brand new Christian, or a long-term follower of Jesus, we find ourselves in this moment listening to the advice and the charge of a man named Paul to a group of Christians living in an ancient city called Corinth, which by all accounts, as we've discovered in our series, is incredibly close to Toronto in thinking and style and vibe. Corinth was a city of culture, business, trade, pragmatism. Pursuit of success was what it was famous for. The ancient city was multicultural to the core, a religious gathering place because the world did business there and settled there. Not only was it famous for its entrepreneurial spirit, it was also absolutely world known for its sexual diversity, and that would be the place you would come to experience diversity in all of its forms. If you read the historians of the time, they will tell you, just like our city, Corinth was known for self promotion and self-help and self-discovery. That's the gas in the car. That's the lifeblood of the city, but more. The city was actually obsessed about wisdom. The city was obsessed about knowledge and intellect as a tool for achieving power. They wanted to be smart so they could have self-gain. Like I shared last week, the city was not full of those people born into money or born into power, their aristocracy. The city was known for its up and comers, new money, freed slaves, entrepreneurs, new cultures. And so the goal to get power and status and position was never based on what you were born with, but actually what you did by yourself. Self-made was the call of the city. You became someone through your intelligence. You became someone through your thoughtfulness. You became someone through your hard work. If you were physical, strong. That was to your advantage. This culture was obsessed by youth and beauty and sexual experience. And so you use that to your advantage. Wise, educated, lots of followers, and also lots of communication skills were obsessive in this culture. See, you move from a nobody in Corinth to a somebody by your own achievement. So self-sufficiency, self-congratulation, self-reliance are the core values of Corinth. And like our culture, They were obsessed about how many followers you had, and how young you were, and how sexually appealing you were, and how powerful you were, and what you said and what you did got you somewhere. So Paul comes along, and he's speaking to a group of Jews and Greeks who have all become followers of Jesus from that city, and he's asking this question, how do you pilgrim towards heaven? How do you pioneer and take new ground in a city like that? how do you be in Corinth and love Corinth, but not be of Corinth? How do you be in Toronto, love Toronto, but not be fully of Toronto? How do you change the culture and not get sucked back into, sucked in again to the thing that you've been saved from? How do you live differently? How do you expose darkness? How do you radiate light? How does one settle for something that is not just common or good or something better? How does the Christian standard of righteousness and love and purity and holiness and consecration and obedience actually play out? Out religiously with money, sex, power, and relationships. Now, if that's not a big enough question and a big enough charge and a big enough struggle, we found out in week one, there was really, really an inside problem in this church. It was like there was a cancer in the middle of the heart of this church. They hated each other. Isn't that nice in a church? He says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another in what you say, and there'd be no divisions among you but that you'd be perfectly united in thought and mind. Brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, they've informed me that there's quarrels among you. Remember what I said week one? It's like Chloe, who by the way was a world-class businesswoman. She would work for an equivalent of Burberry or Saks Fifth Avenue. She shows up where Paul's writing this and says, listen, don't believe the Instagram account of Corinth. It's all set up. It's all a lie. They hate each other. Unfollow them and deal with them, would you? And so as we found it in week one, Paul says the way that you continue to be light in a city that is beautiful but dark, and at the same time, the way you actually stay together and love each other, even though there's vast diversity among you as Christians, is that you choose to actually root your identity, your personal identity, and the church unity in the grand truth that the person that you're struggling with has actually been called by God to know Jesus just like you. This is what he said in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So our unity is actually found not in ourselves, not in our ethnicity, not in our gender. It's not even, it's found in the idea that God decided before the beginning of time to call you to know Jesus. But your unity just isn't found in call. Your unity in a local church is also found in the cross of Jesus. We landed here last week. And by the way, if you are a seeker or a skeptic, this is when you need to lean in. 1 Corinthians one eighteen. for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross, what we have accepted through Jesus's work is also where our unity is at. But some of you need to ask the question, well, John, what's the message of the cross? That sounds very churchy. I don't get that. Here's how Paul articulated it to another church in the city of Rome. He said in Romans 5 8, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, while we were not looking, where we were actually on our own path, God sent Christ for us and he died for us. Now, in the middle of this self made, grand, multicultural, multi faith, self promoting city, the message of Christianity is based on the cross and the response of the people is obvious. (laughs) This is stupid. Foolish, scandal, stupid, idiotic, intellectually not viable, religiously wrong, backward, disgusting, offensive. You can see it, right? This is what I shared last week. The Christian message offends everyone in every direction, secular and sacred. See, religious people start going, hold on a second. I get to know God by what I do. If I pray enough, if I, if I do this and this and this, then God will know me or I will know God or I will find God or God will love me when I get to heaven because my good will away my bad. And when you start saying that Jesus died on the cross for me and there's nothing I can do to know God, that is offensive to me because you're saying all my religiosity counts for nothing. And then others are saying this isn't scientifically provable. This isn't logical. This isn't rational. This is not wise. And God comes along. And says, actually, no matter how secular or secular, secular, or spiritual or religious you are, actually, you're all wrong. <laughs> God's real work has nothing to do with beauty. God's real work has nothing to do with being self-made or popular. God's work has nothing to do with how many degrees you have behind your name. It has nothing to do with the money in your account, how much or little that you have. It has nothing to do with being good enough, spiritual enough, religious enough, tough enough. It has nothing to do with your RSPs, power. Actually, it never comes from down here, Ever. It is the opposite of the core values of the city. It is the opposite of the brilliance of the city in all of its forms. It is trusting in the life, the physical death, the physical resurrection of Jesus. In other words, Paul is preaching Jesus is the center of reality. Not you, not us, not our religion, not our secular values. Jesus is. Now remember what Paul said. The response was, when the message of the cross, the message of Christianity got out, He said in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, but we preach the Messiah, Christ crucified, and it's a stumbling block to Jews and and it's foolishness to non-Jews, but to those whom God has called, oh, there it is again, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, here's what we need to embrace again as we get going this morning. No thinking person, no deeply religious person, no natural person will embrace, run towards love or understand the idea of the cross. Non-Jews wanted power and beauty and ideas and external strength and education and new moral philosophical systems or they want self-empowerment or they want their own rights and they want their own freedom. And then Jews came along and said, Jesus, you don't fit our theological box. And here's the real truth of the human condition. Most of us think we can outwit God, be smarter than God, we can think our way to God, and God says you can't. But to those, Paul says who God gives faith to, to those that God gives life to, no matter your gender or your ethnic background or how much power you have or ma- no matter if you're a good speaker or not, the cross is the power of God and the cross is the wisdom of God and the cross demonstrates the love of God and the cross demonstrates the hope of God and the cross evidences the kindness of God. And then Paul says, and don't forget, that is where the church's unity is. Don't break it, don't ignore it. You've been called by God together and your unity is found in the cross of Jesus, which you've all accepted, and now you all know Jesus through the cross, and since God the Father has allowed you to see and embrace the message of the cross, that is where your unity is with other Christians. So stop fighting with each other. But then there's a third chord, a third strain to our Christian unity, and Paul is so aware that this church is about to collapse, and if you interviewed them, they would be no different than Corinth in money, sex, or power in any way. They would be non- countercultural. And at the same time, he's so aware the church is about to implode because of internal strife and fighting, he now shows them the last great strand in Christian unity. And this is what he writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 4. my message and my preaching was not with wise or persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul says the message of the cross and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, you did not accept it just because it was intellectually viable alone, though it is. Oh yes, the message of the cross is historically defensible. That's what the Smoke and Mirrors series was about a few years ago. Oh yes, the idea of the cross deals with the very fundamental questions in human existence. It clearly deals with origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Let me say that again. The cross in the most explicit way deals with origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. It's logical, it's well thought out, it's inspiring, it's historically defensible. But then Paul says these shocking words, but you did not accept the message just because I was able to put these pieces together. Your faith is actually not based on anything but the Holy Spirit's power. You weren't convinced because my style was great or I was really eloquent or I actually have two PhDs in theology, nor did you accept the Christian message because of your understanding, your education, or even your open posture. Ultimately, he says, God's word and God's will and God's wisdom all come clear to us through one thing. They come through the spirit of the living God. God's Holy Spirit opens our mind to understand. And that is the point. And if you're a Christian here this morning, lean in and listen. Our unity with each other and with other churches that are historical and orthodox and love the scriptures is this. We are all called by God the Father, and since we're called, we're going to spend eternity with each other. Let's get used to each other on this side of the fence. And also our unity is Jesus's work on the cross, and our unity is that the Holy Spirit has revealed to you and to us where our unity is and that unity cannot be broken. Our unity isn't stronger than God the Father's election. Jesus' death and resurrection, and the Holy Spirit's binding us together. So he comes and says, this is how churches stay together. He says, let me keep working this out for you. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So you who have accepted the wisdom of God, he writes, we now need to systematically begin to walk away from the wisdom of the world. We need to live in Corinth, but not be of Corinth. We need to live in Toronto and bless Toronto, but not be fully of Toronto. Because don't forget, the wisdom of the world is promoted by the rulers of the age. Okay, now for Paul, that phrase, rulers of the age, has a double meaning. First of all, it means the great leaders and influencers in culture religious, political, education, cultural, those who actually build worldviews. Now, everything they say is wrong? No, much of what they say is right. And yet there are broken things they promote that are in rebellion against God and his nature. But not just the great ones who create culture and worldview. Also for Paul, this is a phrase meaning Satan. And what he's pointing out is actually the kingdom of darkness, the power behind the power that opposes Jesus is present too. So, we are being called together, Paul is saying 2,000 years ago, and we're saying this at C4 this morning. We're called to be countercultural, not to live and look like the wisdom of the age anymore. But here's the problem with that. When I say the wisdom of the age, or you hear that, what does that mean? If I'm supposed to be walking towards Jesus and away from whatever that is, but I don't know what that is, how will I know it? It's too vague, it's too foggy. So, what is the wisdom of the world? What is the wisdom of the age? Well, like we found out, it can take very religious and very secular forms, but in the end, you will know it as the wisdom of the age because you are all at the center of it. It's what the Bible actually calls idolatry. Years ago, we were going through the Ten Commandments as a church, and we had this whole conversation about idolatry. And I summarized the wisdom of the world this way. First of all, I said the wisdom of this age is when we worship other gods from formal religions, or through our own made-up spirituality. I just want to warn you, hold with me to the very end, okay? Some of you are about to get very angry and very uncomfortable. It's okay. Lots of hugs. Just hold with me, okay? In the Judeo-Christian worldview, when a person, even a really sincere good person, worships another god, it's idolatry. When a Hindu gives offerings to Ganesh or Shiva or Vishnu or Brahma, when a Muslim says Jesus is only a prophet, Uh, When a Buddhist teaches karma and reincarnation and believes that nirvana is earned by self-instruction, this is idolatry. When a Jehovah Witness is meeting right now this, on this Sunday morning and begins to teach that Jesus actually is just created and really was Michael the archangel, or when a Mormon knocks at your door and says they're Christians, but when you find out they teach that Jesus and Satan were really brothers and actually the God we know is just one of millions of gods that populates the universe. When a Wiccan witch actually calls on the powers of nature to bless someone in a good way, though it is sincere, it is idolatry. Many people break God's heart, knowingly or not, also by folk religion, spirituality, when you place yourself at the center or you actually connect to spiritual forces that don't lead you to the true living God. As I've preached so many times, this very quote, beneath all our technology, all our iPhones and Samsungs and science and medicine, you will find that even in the suburbs, the average person is regularly involved in all sorts of practices like tarot cards and psychic readings and crystal and new age and horoscopes and Ouija boards and reincarnation readings and ghosts and haunted houses and levitation and palm reading and seance and tea leaves, water witching, Reiki where you're using energy where you're not sure where it comes from to heal someone, numerology, astrology. Some of you here today pretend. Participate in secret societies where you actually have said spiritual things even though you don't believe it because it's a friendship club, but you're invoking things. All of this is idolatry. All of this is the wisdom of the age because all of it is removing God. Now, that's the religious form of this. And then there's actually the secular form of this. It's when sex, money, and power are expressed in thought, word, and deed the way we want them to be. Now, let me make this very clear this morning as a fellow human being as a person who lives and loves Toronto, and also as a Christian pastor. Sex, money, and power are not bad. God gave us sex and money and power and relationships. But when we come along to God and say, and we will define how they are used, when they are used, and you have no right to instruct us, idolatry. John, I know that God says I shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, but I love her and I'm living together. Come on, it's 2017. No, no, your sexual life and actually your girlfriend and boyfriend is now an idol, no, no, John, you can't tell me and God can't tell me how I should express myself because actually it's my right. No, no, you've made your rights idolatry. John, I know that God told me not to lie at work, but if I don't lie at work, I'm not gonna, get listen, then your safety or security has become an idol. See, here's what idolatry truly is at the end of the day. Here's the wisdom of the age, the wisdom of Toronto. What you love and what you seek and what you worship and what you serve, what you allow to control you is God. Another person wrote these things, so apt to Corinth and Toronto. In North America, he writes At this moment, I fear that the number one God among us in which we trust is the God of our inner hidden abilities. In a word, the God of contemporary culture is the God of self. This is long past now, but Gloria Steinem once uh, in the past boldly stated these hopes and aspirations. She said, by the year 2000, I hope we will raise our children to believe in human potential and not God at all. See, if you trust in your education, though good, if you trust in your position at work or in family, if you trust in technology, see, whatever you place your trust in beside God, you end up serving a false God. You can't fully trust in God and money. You can't fully trust in God and science, though they're actually not in contradiction. For in the end, God does not share his glory with anybody. Paul comes along and he says these words, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Everything I've just outlined for you are expressions, are shades, are underpinnings of what the Bible calls the wisdom of the world, created and supported by humans and also even influenced by unseen demonic forces. And Paul is saying, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you've left all this now. This is actually not what we are. God the Father's call and Jesus' work on the cross and the presence of the Holy Spirit is now leading you to a different wisdom. And so do not go back to this. Do not live like that. Do not act like your culture for actually now you are pioneers and pilgrims of a new place. And then he says these words. Did you catch them? He says, listen to this powerful prophetic promise. Listen to this hope-giving truth. All this wisdom is coming to nothing In the end, all human wisdom and all human discovery and all the plans of the kingdom of darkness will not have the final say. Jesus will have the final say. It will all truly pass away. Paul says this, no, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God is destined for our glory before time even begins. See, God's secret wisdom, God's mystery is now an open secret. And this was God's plan all along. God's wisdom, by the way, is outside of time and space because he invented time and space. And God's wisdom existed before humans existed and existed before animals and plants and the stars and the moon and existed before, before, before. God's plan was before all things. And now the inaccessible has become accessible. God's predestined plan is now on display. And here's what so many Christians miss, and it's for our what? Glory. God did this because he loves us. He thought of this before all was so we would enjoy him and love each other and be restored and have purpose in life and hope. We actually are the centerpiece of God's love because God wants to walk with us. Can anyone say amen to that this morning? so profound, what we saw demonstrated here at this site in the baptisms this morning. Paul, I think probably smiling when he wrote this letter, said these words. He said, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Oh, this is the divine irony we all need to catch. The ones that orchestrated and actually in the end got Jesus crucified, The ones that moved heaven and earth to take him out now are actually helping God achieve the very thing God wanted the whole time, even though they thought they were in charge. Whether it was the religious rulers of the day, or the crowds, or the Romans, or Pilate, or us, or the demonic, God is so good at what he does. He takes the most evil, the most heinous, the most wicked, the most backwards, the most blind, and still produces beauty, comfort, salvation, and hope for broken people like us. Paul says, you know, I know this so well because this was predicted. He said, let me tell you what the Old Testament says about this. And he ends up quoting Isaiah 64.4. It is written, no eye has seen and no ear has heard and, and what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Now I want to sit on this verse for a moment. I want us to really embrace this and wrestle with this. Our eyes, this is metaphorical, cannot see. Our ears naturally cannot hear. Our minds cannot naturally comprehend the wisdom of God, the love of God, the person of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God. So then if that is true, if we're really that blind, if we're really that disconnected, if that is actually the true state of the human condition, even the most religious person, John, you're saying is that yes, then what in the world do we do? If we can't get to him or hear him or meet him or see him, if we can't reach to God or comprehend the mind of God, what chance do we have? If I cannot find God, let alone know his mind or his thoughts or his feelings, if I can't even access him or his environment, if there's always a gap, is there any hope? And Paul says, oh, God's not far away. And actually God's not distant and God hasn't left the building. My dad, many of you would know him. Some of you would not, or some of you uh, have never met him. My dad is an artist, an artist. I have none of those skills at all. Uh, My dad is provincially known. He's art in major galleries across the whole province and actually has art all around the world in all sorts of homes. Now, the amazing thing, as I've shared with some of you before, is this. My dad, who is this award-winning, brilliant, intense artist, is colorblind. So years ago, when we were living in Ecuador, my dad decided that he wanted to see a puma in the wild, Because, you know, we all do that naturally, right? That's a mountain lion in Ecuador. Here's the translation. So he went into the jungle for a few days to do that thing. <laughs> anyway. And he came back out. And he was part of an art competition years ago, actually, connected to Canada. And he was painting wildlife at that moment. And so he got so inspired. And for you who are artistically inclined, you know who you are. And some of you are like, I know it's not me. Yeah, we know too. Uh, the accountant's in the room. Uh, so... In the middle of this moment, my dad stayed up all night because he was so inspired. And he was actually drawing and painting this mountain lion and he spent the whole evening and in the morning he was actually doing every single little hair on the mountain lion as the light was reflecting off the hair. I don't even know how you people do that, but that's awesome. And so I wake up in the morning, my mom wakes up in the morning, we walk into the room and he says, what do you think? And I looked at the painting and I looked at my mom and I looked at my dad, and I was like, now what do I say at seven years old? He says, well, what do you think? I said, well, it's really good, Dad, but see, the, the, the Puma's green. And he said, no, it's not. I said, yeah, it's like lime green. <laughs> Here's what I want to bring out. My dad, with all of his brilliance, and all of his intelligence, and all of his travel, and all his photography, and all could not see reality. It actually took an external source to come and say, actually... Even with all your work, you've actually missed what has happened. It's not this, it's like that. And that is exactly what Paul is bringing out here when he says in verse 10, the spirit of God is like that external force that shows you reality. The spirit of God searches all things, even the deep things of God. See, only God knows God's thoughts, and that's the spirit of God. The spirit is the only one that knows God's heart, God's plans, God's wisdom, and God's action because he is part of God because he is God. And Paul says to all of us this morning, that's not weird or deeply mystical because it's the same of you. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? Here's what Paul's saying. You know you best. You know what you really think about people. You know what you really feel. You know what you love and you hate. I will only know you as much as you show me inside what you really are. I can't read your mind. I can read body language, but at the end of the day, you still have to tell me. See, imagine this this morning. At this moment, suddenly I had access to your mind. Pastor John can read every thought, every feeling I know, every desire, every fantasy. You're like, get out of my mind, get out of my mind right now. Out, 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 out. Why? Why? Because usually we as human beings don't reveal who we truly are en masse. And yet we ourselves know what our images are that we hold on to and our vices and our thoughts. Only you have full access to you. I don't unless you let me. And Paul says, oh, that's true also about our creator. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. God. And what we have received is not from the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. See, here's the thing. Imagine your friend comes to you and says, you just drive up to their house, and they say, hey, here's my keys. And, and they give you their keys. And one of those people that have like 4,000 keys, not two keys. So you go to the door to open the door, right? if anyone, raise your hand if you've ever had a key frustration moment in your life. Raise your hand. Yeah, it's a revival. Mm, mm, Yeah, all right. So, right, we go to the door and you start trying. What happens? Number one, key doesn't fit. Number two, number three, number five. By nine, you're losing all the fruit of the spirit and you don't like your friend at all, right? And then suddenly a lying moment happens. The key fits in the door, right? And then you go to turn it, what happens? It doesn't work. And you're so frustrated, you break the key in the lock and then your friend hates you. No, 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 okay. So you take it back out. And you keep going, and then suddenly, key 39, it turns. See, that is a brilliant illustration of the human condition. We are trying to access God, know God, find God, and we're putting all these keys in the door. And even some of us get close because we actually fit a key in, but it will not turn. But Paul says, oh no, don't you understand? It takes the Spirit of God to turn the key to open the door so you actually know who God is. You can't open the door. It takes someone else to do it. See this is the difference about the difference between knowing about something and knowing someone. See I know that mandarin as a language exists today. I know uh, probably over a billion people or near a billion people speak it. Now I don't speak Mandarin. I know it exists. I've heard it before. I've sat among friends who speak Mandarin, but I have no clue. I know about Mandarin. If I decided to take Rosetta Stone or whatever works and learn Mandarin and speak it, see, it's a fundamental difference between knowing about it and actually doing it. It's like when you go to the dentist and you go and you have a terrible root canal issue, right? You go and you love already going to the dentist anyway. So you're so excited to be there. And as you get in the chair, the dentist says to you, just so you know, I've read every book on dentistry. And you're like, why are you telling me this? But thank you. And you're like, and actually, I've also watched every YouTube video there is out there on dental surgery. And not only that, I took every lecture at University of Toronto. But just so you know, I've never done it before. You're like, get out of my mouth, get away! Out. Why? This dentist, he or she knows about dentistry. They do not know dentistry. The difference between understanding and encounter. The Holy Spirit's amazing because He moves us from knowing about something to actually meeting the someone. He starts the whole deal called salvation. Without the Holy Spirit, you'd never know the seriousness of your sin. You'd actually never know about the ideal of idolatry. You'd never know Jesus or your need for a savior. See, we as humans trust in ourselves or religion. We make God what we want him to be. We don't believe in his existence. We play down sin and brokenness. We don't just need new glasses. We need an eye transplant. That's why Jesus said in John 6 8, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be in raw, will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people don't believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can no longer see me, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. See, here's what Paul's saying. It's always an inside deal. It's always inner knowledge, personal connection, personal understanding, personal contact, and God in his love has decided to let us know him by the Spirit. In other words, you can't know God, and you can't talk to Jesus, and you can't experience Jesus without the Holy Spirit. You have never, if you're a Christian here this morning, ever had any experience with Jesus or the Father without the Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit's the only door, the only access to Jesus, and Jesus is the only door and the only access to the Father. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is not an it, he's not the force, he's not a ghost, he's God. And he is the everything to you if you're a Christian. This is why in the old creeds that we confess in churches, we actually say things like this, we believe in the Holy Spirit. He's the Lord. In other words, God, he's the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and he is glorified. Paul says, this is what we speak. Not in words taught, to, taught, uh, taught by us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Holy Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the Holy Spirit does not accept things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them, there's that word again, foolish, stupid, idiotic, unattainable. And they cannot understand because they, are not, because they are only discerned through the Spirit. So here's a really interesting thing this morning. Do you really actually want to know if you're saved today? Like, do you actually want to know if you actually know God and God knows you? Do you actually want to know eternally where you will live? Do you want to know? Well, the answer is this. A natural person, a good, educated, sincere, good Canadian person, a natural person, in the end will still not accept, will not have the ability, will be incapable of understanding the cross of Jesus. You may say it's a factual thing, or you believe it happened, or you don't believe, but see, this is what you'll end up saying. The message of the cross is foolishness. Why? Because without the Holy Spirit opening the door, without the Holy Spirit saying the puma is green, you will not understand. You will not even intellectually, though you are greatly connected, you will not be able to cross over the threshold without him. So here's the response, by the way, for every single seeker here this morning. Every skeptic, whether you're atheist or you're from another faith or you don't believe anymore or you got burned by church 25 years ago and you can't stand that you're even sitting in the building, no matter who you are this morning, let me just say this. Here's your one response as a seeker here this morning. Go home this afternoon after you've eaten whatever you're going to eat and by yourself say out loud these words, Holy Spirit, if you're real and if Jesus is real and this cross thing is real, you have to give me understanding I do not have because I don't believe it, I don't get it, I want to get it, and I can't get it, I can't cross this line. You have to open the door, I can't do it. That is your only prayer. And do it out loud, get serious about it, And just say, Holy Spirit, if this is true, if Jesus is true, if the cross of Christ is true, if there's salvation, if there's hope, if I could know God personally, if there are second chances, I can't intellectually go there. I can't emotionally go there. I can't fill in the blank. Say, Holy Spirit, you have to build some bridge I can't. I'm not even sure I want to talk to you. That's no problem. Just say, Holy Spirit, show me. And watch over the next few months what happens to you. But do not be afraid. This is what angels always say at these moments. Do not be afraid because the Lord is good. Now, for the rest of us sitting here today, celebrating God's unity and even at the site celebrating baptisms, Paul's not done. He says in verse 15, the person with the spirit makes judgment about all things. But such a person is is not subject to mere human judgment for who has known the mind of the Lord as so to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, by the way, if you've done church for years, this is incredibly important. Everything comes home right here, right now. One of the names of the Holy Spirit is the mind of Jesus, the mind of the Messiah, the mind of Christ. That's his name. The Holy Spirit is the one that allows us not only to see Jesus, hear Jesus, And know Jesus, the Holy Spirit allows you to think Jesus' thoughts. The Holy Spirit actually allows you to think like, to be formed like Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit is the only one that gives us the thoughts of Jesus. And Jesus, of course, is the only one that reveals the thoughts and desires of the Father. So here's what you got to catch this morning. The Holy Spirit is the glue. He's the lifeblood. He is going to begin when you open this book regularly to show you where there is a yes and where there is a no and where there's a maybe. He's going to allow you to see who you are from God's perspective, and you can build your identity there. He is going to begin to show you actually what. God thinks about you. He's going to begin to show you actually what he thinks about others as you see them, and he is going to begin to give you unity with those you would never hang out with because actually you will begin to think Jesus's thoughts, and he will produce in you desires that are not naturally yours. And so before you, everyone got this, especially you grew up in church, before you can act like Jesus, you need to think like Jesus, but the only way you think like Jesus is if the mind of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is allowed to do your thinking for you and with you. This is the great, amazing role of the Holy Spirit. It was Gordon Fee who was thinking about this, said, look, if if you're really going to see this happen, then you need to start praying to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, help me desire and think and want truth and obedience. Help me to actually desire the things of Jesus. Have you ever thought about Jesus' life? What did Jesus keep saying? I'm going to do nothing except what the Father wants me to do. His whole life is marked by that, right? So I want you to catch this this morning. When you start as a Christian praying, oh, Holy Spirit, mind of Christ, begin to actually do this thing in me. Actually, what you're praying is, I want Jesus's thoughts to be so strong in me that I'm willing to crucify the things I love and I deserve and I want because actually I desire something more. There's a greater love, something more beautiful. This is the Gordon Fee quote. The spirit should identify God's people in such a way that their values and worldview are radically different from the wisdom of this age. They do know what God is about in Jesus. They do live out of a life of the future uh, in the present age that's passing away. And here's the big thing, and they're marked forever by the cross. So the takeaway is this, ready? You say, okay, I want to be a pioneer and a pilgrim in Toronto. I want to live a holy, righteous life, and I know I'm saved. Okay, then you say, Holy Spirit every day, mind of Christ, begin to give me desires and begin to give me thoughts, give me a taste for truth and holiness in sex and money and power and relationships and in spirituality. Actually begin to pull me away from the wisdom of the world even though I want it and I like it and it feels good and actually help me to live countercultural through a power that is not my own. Make me holy out of joy. Now here's the second thing, critical for our church. Thousands of people come to this church, multiple sites, about to go to Bowmanville, oh, hold on, Remember what Paul is dealing with. There's two collapses. The collapse of holiness and the collapse of unity. And the glue out of all of this is the spirit of God. So the first thing is, right? Lord, make me holy and give me your thoughts and desires. But also here's the other thing. Help me to see and desire unity. Ready? Holy Spirit, when I'm hanging out in my connect group, when I'm with other Christians from C4 and other churches that actually we sort of get along and sort of don't, You remind me explicitly that the person standing in front of me actually was called by God the Father before the beginning of time to know Jesus. You remind me, Holy Spirit, that the one that I am actually struggling with in this church or have a different personality or style, you remind me that they have understood the foolishness of the cross like I have because of the Spirit. You remind me that the Holy Spirit that's in me, that he who is guiding me in scripture and in my walk with Jesus is doing that also in that person. Because unity starts, not in the messiness of down here, though we get to it. It starts in the call of God, the work of the cross, our fellowship with Jesus, and the mind of Christ. And so would you stand this morning all across this place, would you up in Port Perry do the same? We're gonna take a moment to respond in a few different ways, out of a very actually difficult passage. But let's just do this together in a few ways. One, number one, some of us, Lord, uh, don't believe any of this. Or we used to believe, or we sort of believe, or something in between. And even as I read that list of worldliness or idolatry, we got pained or offended because that's actually where our trust is. So if you're that seeker or that person, you can even quietly just say, Holy Spirit, show me the truth. For the rest of us, why don't we pray this together? Would you? Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit into this church. Could you all say amen to that? Yeah, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, you are the mind of Christ. And so we pray, mind of Jesus, you would help us to think, not just good thoughts, but actually transform our thinking so there would be a desire for an insatiable desire for truth in the word of God and holiness in our everyday lives. Can you say amen to that? Yeah. And then Lord Jesus, mind of Christ and Father, would you build unity in our church and our great diversity, ethnically, gender, background, economics. Help us, Holy Spirit, keep the glue together. May we not be marked by quarreling as a church, but actually unity. Holy Spirit, we pray you would now begin to descend into multiple situations where there is disunity and quarreling and begin to undo that work of the human heart or the enemy. Thank you, Lord. You're gonna demonstrate through this church how unity can look to a really broken world. We're very thankful that you've given us the mind of Christ. All glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all of God's people said, Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.